One nation, indivisible. Yeah, we say that, but how likely is that? How realistic is that? Actually, try 11 different nations. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. The American dream. Is there an American dream? Is there an American identity? What is, what are the United States of America? I'm very pleased to have with us on the Burt Cohen Show today, Colin Woodard, author of the new book, American Nations, a history of the 11 rival regional cultures of North America. And it is fascinating. It's an amazing look uh, that I don't think you'll see anywhere else. Colin Woodard is a writer, historian, award-winning journalist who has reported for more than 50 countries. He's a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor. His work has appeared in The Economist, Smithsonian, San Francisco Chronicle, Miami Herald, The Daily Beast, and Newsweek, and many others. He's author of The Lobster Coast, The Republic of Pirates, and Ocean's End. So American Nations came out in the fall of 2011 to widespread praise. Publishers Weekly said of American Nations, Woodard makes the provocative claim that our culture wars are inevitable. North America was settled by groups with distinct political and religious values, and we haven't had a moment's peace since. Uh, American Nations details the history of intranational differences and the pivotal role these have played and continue to play as is certainly evidenced by the ongoing 2012 elections. Well, Colin, again, thanks for being with us on the Burt Cohen Show. You say there isn't and never has been one America, but rather several Americas. All the time we hear from concerned Americans saying, please unite us, don't divide us. But it seems that the deep fissures in what are now the United States of America have been there from the start. We all hear of red states and blue states, the North and the South. But this book, American Nations, makes that case that not only are we not one nation indivisible, but that there are far more than just two sub-nations. And, uh, well, let's start out looking at, uh, well, the founding of America and a great many politicians in the 2012 election claim to channel the energy from America's founders. In your analysis of actual history, was it the founders' intent for what later became states to become one nation with a centralized government, or were the states the intended locus of power? The states were definitely the intended locus of power, and I think that's understood, especially in the first constitution we had, the uh, Articles of Confederation, as opposed to the, the second one, which we're operating on now. But the assumption was that states had the sovereignty and indeed still have those aspects of it. 
But what's even more difficult in our national identity and the way our country is really constructed is that the people who came together in 1776 and again in 1789 to write the Constitution weren't the real founders of the country. And that's the big problem we have. The real founders were those people's great and great great and great great grandparents who founded uh, places like the the early Puritan colonies in Massachusetts Bay or the Dutch West Indies Company uh, colony at the end of Manhattan Island, the, the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam, the slaveholders who founded uh, early Charleston coming from the West Indies uh, British colony of Barbados. I mean, those are the actual founders, and they were founding totally different countries, as it were, with very little in common with one another, who didn't think of each other as being related to one another, except by sort of coming off the shared stem of the British Empire. So it's not only states, it's separate regional cultures that don't even match our state boundaries often. I mean, look at a state like Maryland or Texas or California, where there are enormous regional divisions uh, where one part of the state uh, has very little to do with the other. You know, in, in the case of California, the coastal fringe from, say, Monterey North has more in common with the coastal fringe of Oregon and Washington State and even British Columbia than any of those uh, coastal areas do with the interiors of their own states and provinces. So even the states are a, a poor mechanism for understanding the real relationships in our federation and indeed the others on the continent. I am reminded of uh, back in uh, the 2004 election when my then eight-year-old, she knew that both her parents were rooting for John Kerry for president. And she asked, did Kerry win? And we said, well, no, he didn't. She said, did he win New England? We said, well, yeah, he did. So her next logical question was, well, can he be president of New England? (laughs) And, you know, I have to say, recently when uh, when Newt Gingrich kicked butt, I think I can say that on the radio, in South Carolina with all parts of the state, virtually the entire map, there's only a little bit on the coast that didn't go for him, and every different uh, walk of life voter for Newt Gingrich, I didn't connect with that. That's not the America I know. I'm, you know, proud to say I'm from Yankeedom. And here we are with all these different interests and, and different identities. And and you have pointed out that at the time of the, well, it wasn't a revolution, the, the, the secession, the successful secession from England, was there an American side of the war? Or, or you suggest it was a loose alliance of six nations temporarily working together against a common threat. I wonder if you could talk about that just a little bit. These separate clusters of colonies had very little in common, but what drove them together in the revolutionary period was a shared threat to their own autonomy and way of doing things that came from London and the British Empire, where the authorities in London were seeking to standardize and centralize power within their empire, more on the lines of what, say, the French king Louis XIV had in his empire, where everyone, he said what went and everybody obeyed. But instead, the English and then British empires had evolved with these colonies that had their own charters and were self-governing in many respects and seemed to run their own affairs. I mean, Massachusetts was very much like that. New Englanders were used to running their own affairs almost as a separate peoples. And this was enormously frustrating to many authorities in London. So in the various efforts, and they tried a number of times, but in the 1770s, they were really stepping up the efforts to force the colonies into line. And that threat to their culture, their way of doing things, their 
autonomy and independence in ways was a threat that each one of them was experiencing. So they, yes, they bandied together in a sort of uh, loose alliance, a sort of NATO-like alliance against a common threat, the Continental Army, with a, a loose sort of treaty organization, the Continental Congress, that was trying to coordinate between these separate sovereign states, as you put it, to fight off a shared threat. Now, not all of the regional cultures were on board with this effort. Right. Some of them saw the best way to protect their way of life as not separating from the crown for different reasons, which is why the area around what's now New York City, the, the Dutch-founded area, realized the best way to carry on their particular ways of life and cultural norms was to remain under the British crown, and they ended up being the center of loyalism throughout the war. New York City was the base which the royal authorities used, both the Navy and the Army, to execute their attempted invasions to conquer uh, New Englanders and Virginians and so on and so forth. And then a whole stretch of a regional culture I call the Midlands, which was founded by William Penn and the Quakers and was characterized by enormous ethnic pluralism. There was never sort of a, the English were never even a dominant group. The whole idea was you had many peoples living side by side with their separate cultures, and that was fine because the Quakers had this idea that humans had an inner light and were inherently good, so they had an open immigration policy. And that resulted mm. in huge numbers of Germans, and a lot of them were Anabaptists, and like the Quakers, or Amish, and so on and so forth, like the Quakers were people who were from pacifist sets, who were fleeing terrible conditions of warfare in Europe, and were appalled by the idea that new conflict was going to begin, and extremely concerned that the more chauvinistic cultures around them would deny them of their sort of individual autonomy if the revolution happened. So that entire region tried to remain neutral in the conflict, tried to help and supply the armies of both sides as long as they were paid. And that was the problem that Washington's army faced at Valley Forge. They were stranded in the Midlands, and Midlanders weren't necessarily backing him or backing the English and even the way the war was conducted. So yes, it was really a set of separate but related uprisings or sort of wars of liberation against the crown fought for very different reasons. Well, fought for the same reason to, right. to keep one's own culture intact, but fought for very different principles in that the cultures they were fighting for, in some cases, had very little in common. We are talking on The Burt Cohen Show with Colin Woodard, author of the powerful new book, American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. And I, you know, in reading your fairly standard American history, I remember uh, Washington had a tough time in what was then New Netherlands, uh, I believe it was perhaps New Amsterdam. And from this book, I learned that a lot of people in Dutch New Netherlands were really worried about the potential of Yankeedom to dominate them. And that probably had a lot to do with why Washington had such a hard time winning that battle. And thinking of, of what's now New York City, the great Dutch influence over culture and politics of New Netherland, reading about the, its origins, the early days, I was really taken aback at how the current character of New York City remains the same. Unabashedly commercial, little concern for social cohesion or the creation of any model society. It was really unlike any other nations that all cultures were welcome on its streets. I was thinking, yep, that's the New York City I know. <laughs> yeah, it shares that with the, the the Midlands culture I described, but with a very different emphasis because it was it was founded by the Dutch in the 1640s, and at that time the Netherlands was the most sophisticated sure. state in the Western world, mm -hmm. and Amsterdam 
was what New York is today, not by coincidence. It was a center of global commerce. It was the first clearinghouse for international currencies. It was the center of the Western world's publishing. It was a, a beacon for immigrants and oppressed people from other cultures, particularly because the Dutch had this great belief and emphasis on freedom of inquiry and conscience that allowed people to publish things and speak about things and do things that wouldn't be tolerated in other places. And indeed, from the time it was a tiny village, the same was true of New Amsterdam, the community that became New York City after the Dutch were defeated in the 1660s. And it has retained throughout those salient Dutch features. So it's, uh, yeah, commercial and freedom of and conscience, and not this sort of stress on morality right. that you find in greater New England. So absolutely. And, and it is true, you know, I, I have to say, I guess... I like Yankee culture. Maybe I'm a, a Yankeedom chauvinist, I suppose. But what about what about Yankeedom has been such an irritant to make us so disliked by so many of the other nations in North America? I, I guess there was, uh, you, you call it the Yankee Moral Project that was out there uh, being aggressive across the country. I love Yankeedom. We are suspicious of inherited privilege. In what ways did Yankeedom rub the other nations, especially Tidewater, the wrong way? I'm from Maine and speaking to you from Portland, so I'm embedded in Yankeedom as well. But we've always made extremely frustrating and obnoxious neighbors of ourselves. And <laughs> the fundamental reason, which many people have had to live near us know, is that the culture from the time the Puritans arrived, the Puritans were trying to execute a applied religious experiment. They were trying to create a utopia, a more perfect and godly society on earth, a beacon of light, a, a, a city on the hill for the rest of mankind to follow, and woe be unto you who did not conform to this great plan. And it was a um, literally a missionary project to create this more perfect world, and it was to be executed through public and community institutions. And the stress was always on the freedom of the community, not on the freedom of the individual, which, when you think about it, for most Americans is a really odd idea. But here in New England, it's, you know, it's all about self-denial for the broader good, right? Don't show flashy wealth because you might offend somebody else around you. I mean, these are very odd Yankee notions that date back to that time period. But it, it meant that there's an assumption of conformity, especially in the early Puritan period that's still with us today, where others are ultimately supposed to behave according to our cultural norms. Right. And the more the, the perfect society the Puritans were envisioning, and later the, the, the Congregational and Presbyterian missionaries who were sent out literally by a domestic missionary society to the Midwest to save it from other religions and from Southerners, mm. um, they, were, they were sent out there to carry these moral values. So imagine your, the, the, the neighbors, many of the neighbors were Midlanders. There were a lot of German immigrants who were coming from Pennsylvania and what's now Pennsylvania Dutch country and moving out uh, onto the plains, often adjacent to or in communities shared with Yankees. And Sunday comes around and everybody's Protestant and religious and, you know, they say the Lutherans and the Calvinists shouldn't be that far apart. But, oh my gosh, the poor Germans are trying to go out and their, their long cultural tradition of having some beer on Sunday in the beer garden and the... The Yankees next door are completely upset because you're supposed to, you know, go be abstain from everything fun and go be dour in the meeting house. And if you don't, you're being a horrible heathen. So you can imagine the immediate friction of that and the sort of the cliche, the sort of 
cartoon stereotype would be this sort of self-righteous sort of moralism demanding everybody else behave like you do and to get involved in your business and make sure you do. Now, there are genuine and deep religious reasons why the early Puritans, and to some extent that echo is still felt in our culture, it was that the Puritans believed that they collectively would be rewarded or punished by God for their actions. So if somebody out there messed up in your community, you all could be punished for it. So therefore, it was everybody's duty to make sure that everybody was on the right path, which leads to that sort of self-denial and monitoring of everybody else that is most dramatically illustrated by things like the Salem Witch Trials. So yeah, it's that whole, it's a very different worldview that settled very early and was enormously frustrating if you weren't from that culture and you had to live around it. Well, I feel a little bit less proud of Yankeedom now after hearing you describe it. I could see. <laughs> oh, all the regional cultures have their warts, for sure. And the early Puritan experiment and its descendants, of course, there's all kinds of you know, terrible things in our history, oh, yeah. just as in uh, many other countries and cultures' histories. Well, you start a chapter on the left coast, which is another one of the 11 nations, asking, why is it that the coastal zone in Northern California, Oregon, and Washington seems to have so much more in common with New England than it does with other parts of those states. Well, well the argument throughout the book is that um, these cultures spread with the, with the initial um, settlers who moved and you know, pushed out, replaced, or, or subjugated the Native Americans around them. As they moved uh, into mutually exclusive bands of the Midwest, they often were avoiding one another, and they were setting down the first Euro-American communities and as they did so, they were laying down the cultural DNA that sort of spread, for instance, Yankeedom across much of upstate New York, the Western Reserve of Ohio, which was gnawing up into the upper Great Lakes states, which were founded almost entirely by the initial leadership groups from New England and from the aforementioned parts of New York and Ohio. Now, the left coast is also an experiment in that regard. The coastal areas of California and Oregon and Washington were settled largely initially by sea, by New Englanders. And they were accompanied also by these same domestic missionaries who were seeking to create a New England on the Pacific and to save the the Pacific to be another Massachusetts. And they they saw it as sort of an extension, a repeat of the Mayflower voyage where they would be traveling to a a new land and creating a new light on the hill. Um, And that experiment was only partially successful. And the reason is that gold was discovered very early on and attracted enormous waves of immigration from other parts of the continent, uh, a lot of them from the Appalachian-settled parts of the Midwest. And these people tended to arrive um, overland by wagon and settled the countryside, whereas the Yankees dominated the towns. And so the, the, the effort to extend the New England and the Yankee way to take over the, the Pacific coast was not entirely successful. What ended up happening is there's a creation of a hybrid culture along the coast. Uh, it's an interesting fusion. It takes the, the, the Yankee belief that you can create a better society here on Earth. I mean, and remember that not all religious traditions uh, believe that. A lot of them have an emphasis on individual salvation in the hereafter, and that the current world is wicked and corrupted, and right. you, you know, there's no sense worrying about it, that you worry about your personal salvation later. These sort of messianic religion where you try to um, perfect the existing world, that is very much a part of, of the left coast, the Pacific coastal fringes culture. But it's fused with these, uh, the Appalachian people's emphasis 
on individual sovereignty and self-actualization and self-expression and kind of bringing your own um, your own individual self to fruition as much as possible. And it's it's resulted in a very fecund experiment. I think think about today all the high tech companies, uh, many of the high tech companies in the world are along the coastal strip, be it Amazon or Apple or Microsoft and Silicon Valley, Facebook, Twitter. I mean, virtually anyone you think of is along that particular strip. So it's been a, a an interesting experiment. Well, I have heard that there's something called uh, Cascadia. There are people nowadays who think that, uh, well, California is just, how can that be one state? It just seems crazy that to have Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia perhaps all be united in, in more of a... Uh, a homogeneous uh, type of culture. So it- absolutely, and it, you know they're they're working with state boundaries, which is, as you point out, a bit of their error because large parts of those right. places do not share anything in common. But what they're getting at is really a shared left coast culture that right. would go from Monterey all the way to Juneau, Alaska, really. And there were other secessionist movements in parts of that. There was a state of Jefferson that oh, yes. almost came together in Northern California and Southern Oregon. That um, was uh, only sort of defeated by the uh, Japanese striking Pearl Harbor, and suddenly the ideas of breaking up new states fell off the agenda. So, sure, there's, uh, there's been a lot of discussion of various secession movements, some of which echo some of the regional cultures I describe uh, throughout our history. And, you know, everybody, all school kids know about, you know, the South attempting to secede. It strikes me as, you know, uh, uh, consistent with... Uh, uh, New England and the 13 colonies seceding from England, wanting to determine their own future. But but why is it that that there's so little talk about, uh, well, New England actually thought about seceding, I believe it was in about uh, 1812, the Northeastern Yankee Nation. Tell us yeah, about Yeah, I mean, we were, almost all of the uh, initial nations on the East Coast contemplated secession at one time or another in the in the 80 years after the Battle of Yorktown, and one of the first was Yankeedom. And it was during the course of the War of 1812, which for various reasons uh, New Englanders and Yankees were strongly opposed to, uh, in fact, to the point where the governor of Massachusetts at the time actually sent an emissary to the British, who we were at war with technically, in Halifax, asking them for uh, if they would provide assistance were um, the New England states to secede and uh, form their own country. And the frustration that, at, at essence, this was the, the result of an unpopular war, but also the realization um, after the collapse of the president, that the, the unsuccessful presidency of John Adams by New Englanders, that they would not, in terms of population and electoral power and control of Congress, be able to control this new country like they thought they were going to. It was actually, as the, as the West was opening up, what's now the Midwest, they were actually going to um, lose in relative power. And this uh, appalling realization that New England culture was not going to dominate the new country led to a, a, a great reconsideration of uh, the, the Yankee role. So yes, there, was, uh, there, were, there were a great deal of discussion in newspapers and even a, uh, a convention convened in which these things were um, actively and openly discussed. Uh, the War of 1812, though, um, suddenly came to an end in the midst of these discussions with a, uh, a great victory by Andrew Jackson in New Orleans, and that um, made them look sort of silly and unpatriotic, and it sort of collapsed thereafter. But yes, uh, Yankeedom came very close to seceding at that time. 
So another one of the uh, the eleven nations is something which you call uh, Tidewater, uh, which you say were diametrically opposed to Yankee values, politics, and social values. Uh, that there were uh, battles between Tidewater and Yankeedom uh, for the Constitution, a battle of values, uh, which was could have been a major factor in in driving uh, us toward what became known as the Civil War. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about Tidewater here and where they are. Sure. I mean, and, and they even fought on opposite sides of the English Civil War, which was the great struggle of the uh, early 1600s after they were founded. So, I mean, they, the Tidewater was founded uh, in the early 1600s, just like uh, early New England was, but it was founded by a very different group of people with a very different set of goals. It was um, largely a project that would be guided by the lesser sons of English country gentry. Uh-huh. And these were, um, you know, think Downton Abbey, um, but <laughs> go, go, go a few centuries back. These are the great landed aristocrats. But the firstborn son inherits everything. The secondborn, thirdborn, fourthborn, fifthborn um, get nothing and have to go out into the world and, and find military careers or enter the priesthood or do something. But the discovery of the new world gave an opportunity for some of these second and third, these disinherited sons of, of the great families, to have a second shot, to go to the New World and try to recreate the, um, the English manorial system of the uh, early 1600s on the shores of the Chesapeake. And this is what they attempted to do in Maryland and, and Virginia and southern Delaware and, and in parts of coastal North Carolina, the, the Tidewater region that would eventually produce the great Virginia leaders, Jefferson and Madison, and the gentlemen leaders of the early republic, the enlightened gentlemen. This was an outgrowth of an attempt to create an aristocratic society. And of course, unlike early New England with its middle-class ethos and town meetings and this great emphasis on the community's success and on divide, you know, you'd go out into the frontier and you'd lay out a town from a central plan and hand out land patents and immediately tax yourselves to build a public school and a meeting house. None of that was done in Virginia. It was a aristocratic establishment with an enormously hierarchical society and, and great deference for authority. It was as conservative a place as you could imagine because it was recreating exactly what, what existed in the English countryside. There were no towns. Think about it. Early Virginia had no real towns. Williamsburg and St. Mary's City, the capitals of uh, Maryland and Virginia, were basically government campuses that were largely empty, sort of ceremonial campuses built, again, from Central Enlightenment plans, you know, with symbolic buildings and allusions to classical Greece and Rome in their plans, but were basically not real towns. And the reason for that is every manorial estate, just like back in England, was sort of a self-sufficient economic unit unto its own, with its own docks on the various rivers and creeks and tributaries of the Chesapeake to which ocean-going ships would arrive and take away their their economic surpluses and deliver them all the goodies produced in London. So they were able often to, to get their goods back to the market in London easier than some of the country estates could overland. So it was very different place from the very beginning with totally different values and social structure than early New England and loyal to the Church of England and the the established church and the king at a time when the early Puritans were from a dissident sect and during the English Civil War hostile to the king. So yeah, you couldn't find, they were polar opposites in every possible way in English society at the time they were founded. 
And I imagine that there's still some of that in, in Tidewater, some sense of that nobility. I don't know. I mean, it's been a long time. Is, is that still, I mean, certainly Yankeedom, the cultural identity seems to fit, but I wonder about Tidewater. Sure. I mean, it does, and it certainly did all the way through the Civil War generation and beyond the idea of the great mythologies of the English Civil War, that this was a struggle um, between the the, the Anglo-Saxon ordinary crude people and the descendants of the noble blood of the Normans who'd invaded England. That was how the king's army thought of themselves, the descendants of the Normans in the English Civil War, and the parliamentary forces that fought them that were packed by New Englanders and Puritans generally were the crude Anglo-Saxons. I mean, that whole notion came up again in the Civil War, that there were racial differences between the two groups dating back. Mm -hmm. Of course, none of that was really exactly true, but this is how heartfelt it was. And there's still this notion in the mythology of Tidewater, Virginia, and Maryland of it having been a place with gentility and a genuine gentility in the the good sense of it, the Enlightenment figures with their education and their refinements, thinking out the great problems of the age. The great and thoughtful men would have the responsibility to guide society in their lesser hands below them. Now, the Tidewater culture, unlike our own, is being squeezed badly. It's being eroded at the edges. It's the one most likely to sort of become extinct because it was blocked off from expanding westward by more boisterous neighbors, and now it's being squeezed by the fact that the federal government was later deployed among them, both in Washington, D.C. and uh, at the world's largest naval base in Norfolk, Virginia. And both those places have economies and cultures based on the federal government with huge numbers of people from outside the region who can live, work, exist um, entirely separately from Tidewater culture. And that's been sort of an eroding and corrosive effect that's kind of been breaking down I think, a lot of the traditional assumptions about Tidewater. So it's a place now in flux, but certainly up until relatively recent times, it certainly had had carried many of the characteristics of its foundation forward. Well, there's still a lot of uh, evidence. I mean, you go there and you think, oh, my goodness, it really hasn't changed that much, certainly uh, like New York. Just to the west of (laughs) Tidewater, you have Greater Appalachia, where there were... uh, Well, borderlanders. Now, they rose up and came close to being a distinct nation. The borderlanders value tough, violent, individualistic men. In many ways, Andrew Jackson was a borderlander. Tell us about Andrew Jackson and his influence, their influence perhaps on the politics that we're seeing now in 2012. The Appalachian region, which extends from central Pennsylvania, not only the Appalachian and southern highlands, but it carries on through Uh, the Ozarks of Arkansas and Missouri, and on into the hill country of Texas, and even out into Oklahoma. It's a very large region, and it was founded initially by people from the war-torn borderlands of Britain, both Ulster and the lowlands of Scotland and the English marches, places that had been the scene of endemic warfare for centuries, where, you know, your, your life and limb and property was never secure. Mm, right. And you pretty much had to fight, you know, for your family or in your kith and kin yourself because you couldn't count on the rule of law. And it's created a, a warrior culture that, that was so successful and, and so committed to its own independence and to fighting for itself that it would they were used as effectively sort of mercenaries by Queen Elizabeth to conquer Ulster. And then later when the Indians were resisting the expansion of the colonies along the Appalachian frontier, and indeed in New Hampshire and Maine, the colonial authorities brought in shiploads of people from Ulster and these other places to settle them on the frontier to sort of be uh, 
frontiersmen buffer people who would, uh, who, who would face the Indians and conquer them or not, but be the, the sort of buffer to protect the, uh, the coastal colonies from trouble. Now, huge numbers of people ended up moving, most of them passing through Philadelphia because the Quakers, as I said, let anybody come in and they would pass through the, the ports of the Midlands and go straight to the frontier and spread down the Appalachian mountain chain and have formed a culture that with enormous emphasis on individual liberty, sovereignty, and freedom. And some of these things you'll feel definitely echo in the conservative side of New Hampshire yeah, politics in particular. There's a reason that it's called Derry and Londonderry. Those are the core of a Scots-Irish Ulster enclave from the same time period that arrived there that carry some of the kernels of Appalachian culture to parts of southern New Hampshire. But this culture, unlike the Yankees, and in contradiction to them, believes that freedom isn't the freedom of community from tyranny. That's the Yankee idea, that, that we have to have restraints on the individuals lest one of them become a tyrant and rule over us like those horrible aristocrats back in Britain, right? We've got to make sure the common good is protected, even if you as individuals have to be compromised. The Appalachian tradition is, from its own experience, is quite the opposite. That freedom means the freedom of the individual to the greatest extent possible to not be encumbered by government and rules and such. I mean, if you think about it, it's the freedom to become a tyrant and rule over others as well. It's sort of seen as the, the, the ultimate in freedom. So you can see how those two areas would clash. I mean, oh, yeah. Andrew Jackson is very much, you know, it was a warrior culture. Uh, other scholars have pointed out how our military, particularly the United States Marine Corps, is dominated from people from this cultural region. And Andrew Jackson was uh, exemplary of it, both as a military figure and in his attitude towards government and governmental values and uh, the expansion of the frontier at the expense of the Indians and so on and so forth. The Jacksonian period was really the, the seizure of the levers of federal power by these Appalachian people that everyone else had looked down on as these you know, uncouth awful folks on the frontier, these uncultured borderlanders, they've actually seized control of the government and had, have remained a powerful force in our politics and our sort of notions of American identity ever since, the way that the media, um, you know, ends up cartoon uh, depicting them. But there's, uh, underneath it all, Colonel Cruz is a very different culture that has a great deal of pride to itself and very yes. different values from uh, some of the other nations, particularly Yankee them. And, and it does seem the, the idea of Property rights, you know, extreme property rights, you know, being really into guns, mistrusting outsiders. This seems to be uh, going on still. And I remember James Carville, Democratic uh, advisor, described Pennsylvania as yep. largely, uh, well, Alabama, he called it, or, or borderland. Yeah, he said uh, Pennsylvania is, or at least via the char James Carville-like character in Primary Colors, that movie, uh, the line was... Uh, He's yeah. describing to a neophyte uh, presidential campaign worker. He says, well, to win Pennsylvania, you've got to remember it's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in between. Right. And if by Alabama he meant the <laughs> highlands of Alabama, he's pretty much absolutely right. You know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are both Midlander cities, and uh, in between it is, uh, is the core of the original cultural heart of this greater Appalachian culture. And it, again, we are talking on the Burt Cohen Show with Colin Woodard, author of the new book, uh, American Nations, about the 11 rival regional cultures of North America. And we can't talk about uh, divisions within America without talking about the so-called Civil War. I say so-called because a civil war like the Spanish Civil War, two sides vie for power over a central government. This was not that. But it was a war against secession, and it rained 
horrible destruction exclusively on the South and greatly fanned the flames of racist violence for decades to come. Everybody knows uh, the Southern nation wanted to become independent and self-governing, but was prevented from doing so. And this was an interesting comment you wrote. Had cooler heads prevailed, the United States would likely have split into four confederations in 1861. But for Southern hot-headedness uh, falling for the trap of the attack in, in Fort Sumter, might there have been a negotiated peaceful secession? Would it, aside from the Fort Sumter and other uh, uh, you know, dumb mistakes that certainly gathered strength and, and unified opinion in the North, you know, the North was attacked, we all got to stick together, but could it have been a, a more peaceful uh, separation into four confederations in 1861, and would we have been any worse for it? I mean, it certainly was the most likely outcome that most people were assuming in early 1861 was that the Federation was going to divide into three or four separate confederations, largely on these regional cultural grounds that I describe. Um, and, and it was the Deep South, not the South as a whole, that was bent on seceding. And everybody else was... The, the, the Deep South, which is founded out of Charleston, and unlike the, the Tidewater we describe as founded by... Uh, Barbados slave lords, and from the beginning, it was a West Indies-style slave society uh, with a republicanism uh, modeled on the uh, slave states of the of classical antiquity, where a small oligarchy practiced democracy as a privilege, and the rest of society, you know, could could be enslaved, and that was the natural lot and considered right. the, the ordinary order of things. So that's a a very different culture, and 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 the real polar opposite that emerged. Uh, uh, to Yankeedom and, and the great struggle in the, as the Civil War was approaching was um, between Yankeedom and the Deep South. And all the other nations were ambivalent and lost in between. The Deep South had realized um, in the 1850s that their race to secure dominance over the Federation was doomed, um, that the number of states in the West that were going to be free states or that uh, plantation-style um, slave economy would not function for ecological and, 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 and economic reasons, that they were going to be doomed to lose control of the Senate and ultimately the House. And immigrants were avoiding the Deep South for obvious reasons mm -hmm. and flocking to the northern regions, so the population dynamics in the Congress were being thrown off. That Their way of life was... Um, threatened because the rest of the, uh, they wouldn't be able to expand and ultimately um, the other nations would probably uh, legislate slavery out of existence. And deep Southern leaders made it very clear that the war was fought for slavery. I mean, the quotes are endless and prominent in, in their discussion of why they were seceding and later why they went to war. But it was only the Deep South that was trying to do this. Um, and it was only Yankeedom that was willing to go to war to stop them from leaving. Everybody else was like, okay, let them let them go, but we don't want to live with the Yankees. So, so what was going to happen is it was, going to, and it was discussed in all the newspapers and the intelligence that, uh, that British intelligence officials were create, uh, collecting at the time was that it would break up into sort of what I would call Yankeedom, the Deep South, and a couple of buffer regions. And uh, indeed, the area around New York City, the, the Dutch settled area, discussed um, the mayor of New York wanted to secede himself and make Greater New York City into a uh, independent slave trading city state. So I mean the, the 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 fractures were very clear. And the problem was that when the um, those in Charleston hot-headedly decided to attack the federal fort at Fort Sumter, 
they suddenly and instantly, by attacking the, the shared American flag right. and federal troops from all the other regions, they suddenly made enemies of all of their sympathizers and everybody who'd been on the fence and all of the other nations outside of Yankeedom uh, and basically brought everyone together against them. Um, the only defection to their side in the end was the, was the Tidewater region, uh, which, which joined them because they had slave institutions as well and they didn't really have any other options there. So Appalachia, by the way, didn't. The Southern Highlands largely did not want to join the Confederacy. In fact, um, they tried to secede. You know, the reason there's a West Virginia today is the, right. the, the highlands of Virginia seceded and became a Union state. And uh, eastern uh, parts of, the, of uh, you know, Tennessee tried to do the same thing and, uh, and were prevented by occupying armies. And so the same with uh, the Appalachian regions of Alabama. I and mean, more people from the Appalachian region served in the Union Army than the Confederate ones by a great margin. So that's another thing that's forgotten is that that, that culture did not back um, the war because they didn't want to fight a war to help these great landed aristocrats who treated them like crap anyway um, uh, retain slavery and retain their way of life. It wasn't on their agenda. And and you uh, assert that the uh, South was, was never a unified entity until after the Civil War. And I noticed uh, recently at, at the uh, there was the 2012 Southern Republican debate, and the map that was put up there, I believe it was CNN, was a map of the old Confederacy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's still there. There was a military victory, but, you know, it, 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 it was never a unified entity until after the war. And did the war, was there a winner in the Civil War? Did it settle anything? Well, I mean, the South was definitely defeated in the uh, short and middle term in that war, and a catastrophic defeat that yes. smashed the formal slave system for sure. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the effort by the Yankee directed effort to occupy and nation build and recast mm. the Deep South and Tidewater and ultimately Greater Appalachia in the Yankee image was a total failure. Sure. I mean, as as we've learned more recently, it's an incredibly hard thing to. To, to occupy a foreign country and try to remake it um, in our own um, image. You know, there'll, there'll be resistance to it. And that's why Appalachia ended up kind of joining the South, as it were, is the hostility to Reconstruction, to the, the Yankee um, effort to rebuild their institutions and indeed to free the slaves, which wasn't particularly on their agenda either. So that, um, that brought and created the South and the trauma of uh, the aftermath of that horrific conflict and the experience of Reconstruction, um, I think, is widely agreed in scholarship, uh, first created the, the real unified, solid South that we think of today. It was, a, it was a, um, the aftermath of the war, not the prequel to the war that really um, brought that forward. And it's remained a, a strong construct ever since. And it certainly plays a huge, huge part in the presidential elections. Every four years is the great battle for the presidency. And it just strikes me as a virtually impossible task for one person to win the support and lead all these disparate nations of America. I just, you know, how can you appeal to all these different, really distinct cultures? It just seems an impossible task. You know, once in a while you get somebody who does, I mean, Dwight Eisenhower or Ronald Reagan, it, it can happen. True. But um, in any kind of closely contested election, yeah, it's an extremely difficult thing to do to to um, capture the 
the majority, the, the dominant cultural vibe of yeah. all of these places simultaneously, absent a great external threat to the country as a whole, is a very tricky thing to do. It is very difficult. And, and here we are uh, deep in the election of 2012, and there's this tremendous on the Republican side, frankly, anti-Hispanic immigrant sentiment. The the Republicans want to seal the borders, but doesn't this willfully ignore the realities that one of these nations of which you write, one of the 11 nations, was and is El Norte? Uh, and, you know, we, we romanticize the essential American nature of our legendary cowboys. Do tell us a bit about El Norte, I mean, and this whole anti-Hispanic thing. It's, they, they, the Republicans seem to be casting the Hispanics as new arrivals. But tell us about El Norte. I mean, there are, of course, huge numbers oh, of absolutely. new arrivals from that region, but the, the Spanish southwest of this country, um, the Spanish borderland region, uh, that was the first place that was settled by Europeans in North America. It was, you know, the, the, the beginning of our story is not the Puritans and Virginians landing on the East Coast and moving westward. It's um, Spanish colonists and settlers arriving from the South and uh, exploring great swaths of uh, what's now the United States and even Canada and placing settlements all the way up uh, up in uh, eastern parts of Texas and all the way up to San Francisco um, and throughout the, the desert regions. And you know, there were there were people writing histories of New Mexico before the Pilgrims ever got off of the at uh, Cape Cod. So yeah, it's a much it's a much older culture that goes way way back. But it was their frontier. They were so far from Mexico City and transportation was generally done overland by wooden ox carts and even more remote from Spain itself. And uh and the administration of the Spanish Empire was not very efficient. So they were often on their own and it created a very different culture than that of central Mexico, one that's recognized. I mean we we think of the you know, of uh, South Texas and Southern Arizona and New Mexico and Southern California is in many ways being places apart where where Hispanic uh, food and cultural norms dominate. But what we don't realize is that region and the northern provinces of what's now Mexico have those, those northern places, Norteños, have always been seen in Mexico as being a place apart from the rest of the country with more um, work-centered uh and uh, democratic-minded than central Mexicans themselves. In fact, northern Mexicans have tended to be, uh, northerners have tended to be at the forefront of uh, many of the great revolutionary struggles from the Mexican Revolution uh, on through to Vincente Fox's uh, triumph in the Mexican elections. So it's a it's a, a region that has often tried to secede from Mexico itself uh, to become a third state. So that's the background. You have a very very old culture in place that predates the arrival of English-speaking Europeans in the region. Um, now you sort of fast-forward to the current situation, that area is rapidly expanding, um, both through its own demographic characteristics and through attracting uh, immigration from Mexico and Central America and South America because of shared language. And so as that place is um, growing in its electoral strength, with its, you know, with its population, its influence on... Uh, presidential elections and on the balance in Congress will only grow. Um, extremely uh, hazardous for either party to alienate the people of that region through being perceived as somehow being, uh, you know, anti-Hispanic or racist. Now, the, the immigration question can be complicated. I lived for a year and a half on the border in southernmost Texas, and 
you know, that it's nuanced. There, you know, people who whose family have been there for 500 years also have concerns about illegal immigration. But when the response from the center is, you know, anybody who looks Hispanic and quote should be stopped and uh, right. have to produce ID and prove that you're a real citizen when your family's been there for 500 years, that's infuriating. It it, it alienates people. Uh, if your party decides to do that. So, you know, George W. Bush in the early years was trying to reach out because he knew that a lot of the demographic destiny for his party lay with not alienating uh, the, the, what I call El Norte region and, and Hispanics who live in other parts of the country as well. Um, I think the, the, the current configuration of the party is probably doing themselves some long-term damage um, by reversing that effort and uh, um, yeah. not... Confusing the immigration issue with perhaps a uh, racial and an identity one as to who's really American using a, a, a much narrower definition than perhaps appropriate. Who's really American? That That is a big question. And, you know, we're talking about the last couple of hundred years. There are other uh, areas, too, the far west, which I think can be succinctly described, as you said, as an internal colony of the older nations and the federal government. You know, there's just a lot of resources there, and it's been used for resources. But I, I wonder, without skipping over too quickly, I mean, we could talk for hours on this, um, these, like, are, are old nationalities uh, that ha- haven't we gone beyond that and become a more singular nation and culture? We can see that, you know, we have developed their certainly were separate and distinct cultures and nations, but now the Ali homogenizing effect of decades of coast-to-coast homogeneous TV commercials have the once distinct cultures become a thing of the past? An excellent question. Um, The short answer is you would think so, but no. I mean, just look around you at the enormous differences. Travel and spend some time in uh, South Carolina, and uh, you'll find that you're in a completely different planet than you are in uh, New Hampshire, and not just because the... uh, the weather is sunnier. Uh, ditto for traveling to across any of these national boundaries. You are in another country where the cultural assumptions you have about what freedom means, even, or liberty, are completely different than what you thought. So, no, I mean, the, the amazing thing is the resilience they've had in the face of mass culture and consumerism. Um, yes, were the, the uh, just as you can find a Starbucks on any corner in Paris or Vienna, um, and makes things you know look the same, and people buying some of the same products. It's you know those cultures—French, Austrian, Yankee, Deep Southern—still uh, uh, exist at the foundations. The rest is just appears to be window dressing, and that's borne out in uh, polls and political attitudes, in how people vote, in what products people buy, uh, in rates of religious attendance uh, by different denominations, and so on and so forth. You see it echoed uh, over and over again. That, at the core, those differences remain, and in some respects, perhaps getting stronger. Yeah, I found it fascinating as uh, the various news organizations were looking at the nature of South Carolina. Uh, it became clear that that science is is really not so much valued. Inconvenient truths are, are tossed aside, and I was reminded of the Scopes trial. You know, and it's just really a different nation. And in 1992, many of us remember at the Republican National Convention, Pat Buchanan spoke of a culture war. And I wonder, you know, how much this, the, the, the culture war that he described, which is real, uh, is, it, is it still on? And can either side of the culture war actually win? Yes, I mean, the culture war is still on, and the, the, it was 
played out as well in the 1960s. I mean, if you look at the the, the youth and counterculture movement of the 60s, where it took place and where the demonstrations happened, it's exclusively in certain nations and entirely absent from others, which were hostile to it. You know, there's there's no accident that an easy rider, they get, you know, killed when they enter southern Louisiana by somebody you know, shooting them off the back of their bikes. Um, it, it was a you know, enormous and divisive period, and the nations totally disagreed on that. And there's still disagreement today on on cultural values and assumptions that you see in the in the degree to which uh, social issues um, uh, captivate a majority in these different nations. And remember, this is about dominant cultures. People and individuals within any of these cultures may absolutely hate the dominant culture and right. totally disagree with it, or we may feel that they're backs, but it's something we have to deal with. We may be frustrated to buy it or embrace it, but it's there. And uh, the the equation is very different um, on social issues and the economic issues and all sorts of things uh, between different parts of the country, particularly the Deep South and Yankeedom. And no, you're not going to find consensus agreement between the polar opposites. The the Yankee way and the Deep Southern way are, are not going to agree. The only way that the country, as a federation with a federal government, can agree on these things is when you form a supermajority coalition of nations around one set of opinions or the other to sort of overrule and, and force your decisions on the, on the minority party, as happened, say, in the civil rights struggle where the Deep South was forced to give up its racially-based caste system um, by, by the other nations using and exercising their power. I mean, you'd have to have the same thing for one side or the other to, uh, to, to finally form a coalition or a big tent um, that could latch on to the levers of federal power, which today requires a 60 votes in the Senate and a majority in the House and perhaps the presidency as well, and maybe two generations so you can have a, a majority on the Supreme Court. But yes, that's that's the path you can uh, forward. You're not going to get all the nations to ever agree on many of the salient issues. Yeah, I except of course external threats. And that you know, like any uh, peoples, when that happens, here everyone will band together, and that's probably a good thing. History shows clearly that one, no one nation can forever dominate others. There's great uh, uh, resistance to it and resentment, and it, you know, each election it seems to me, and I've seen quite a few. It seems to be kind of a replay of the same struggle. You know, who's going to dominate? The South right now is really angry, you know, and, you know, th there was Andrew Jackson at one point, uh, uh, John Adams. There's just been different presidents representing different nations dominating, and it's just the struggle seems to go on. I, I wonder how we, you know, is it possible that in, in, in the year 2100 that the borders could look really, really different now, and that perhaps it might be realistic for what's currently the United States to become more like the European Union, a confederation of sovereign states. I mean, people said, oh, that could never happen to the Soviet Union, but it did. Is it? How? I wonder how possible it is that these arbitrary boundaries that were not drawn by God, as far as I can tell, will remain the same in the year 2100. What are your thoughts, uh, Colin? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible that they'll change. What's the likelihood? I, I don't know. I mean, the the um, the most likely scenario one would assume is that somehow the U.S. does manage to hold itself together as we have for a couple of hundred years. But it would be foolish to think that it's not possible in the longer decadal and century-long time frames for that to happen. 
I mean, all three, Mexico, the United States, and Canada, all three of the federations on this continent um, have weaknesses. Canada came very close a decade ago to having Quebec vote for secession. It was, what, right. 1% difference or something? Um, and that's, that, that's gone away for the moment, but it's always possible for it to rise up again. There's, there's deep um, fissures, not only between uh, New France, the French-speaking parts right. of Canada, and the rest, but even internally between the regions. Um, Mexico, of course, has all kinds of problems. It's a federation that uh, was ruled as a one-party authoritarian state for a long time, and now it's not. And all the the federal powers of the different states and stuff, they're starting to compete with each other, and they have a, 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 a great conflict going on with narcotics that's related to, to, to our own uh, drug consumption in this country. And yeah, they're in crisis as well. Could we? I mean, in a who knows if there's a what history holds? Right. If there were cataclysmic events and we had to have a state of emergency, how would we back out afterwards? Let's say there's a series of 9/11 attacks or a pandemic flu like the Spanish influenza of 1917, where you know, all the hospitals will overrun and everybody has has it at once. You you, you could imagine emergencies in the future that we you know may well, even not be without emergencies. I wonder even without. Uh, emergencies like that, you know, given that that no one of these nations can can forever dominate the other, and there's this constant struggle and tension between them, I I just wonder. And you know, one thing that that I have found, and this is subjective certainly, is that a study of history should include what we can do to shape future history. I I wonder if it might not be a good idea to think about what the future could look like more as. Uh, as uh, a coalition of nations that could have happened without those 620,000 people dying back in the, uh, the war against secession, that, uh, that maybe we really aren't one nation indivisible. I mean, there, there are definitely these enormous divisions, and if you were able to magically divide the country on some of these regional grounds, you'd probably have a number of countries with consensus that were happy internally and probably would get along well enough uh, with each other as trading partners, but my, I don't wish that upon the country, not only for any sort of residual sense of U.S. patriotism, but because I covered the uh, Balkans and Eastern uh, Europe uh, during and after the wars, including Bosnia, and you know I don't have sufficient faith in the human condition that once one opened that cans of worms, that it indeed would happen peacefully. You know, the veneer of civilization um, Bosnia taught me was a lot thinner than we think it is. So uh, I, I think that's a path too risky to, um, to, to wish ourselves down um, and awfully fraught with dangers. So I'm hoping that there's a, a way found in which the uh, country can reconcile its differences, at least in terms of a, uh, a, a dominant co- coalition forming that will uh, allow the federal government to function and move forward and have some sort of you know, consensus block. Because uh, the, the the alternate, I think, is fraught with danger. Well, still, but but there's the the issue of uh, you know state sovereignty. A lot of people really feel like you know that was not the original intention of our founders to have one big central government. That Lincoln did that, and that uh, you know th- there has to be. It still has. There's a lot that has to be resolved. We've come up uh, at the end of the hour. Fascinating book. I highly recommend it. Put out by Viking Press. Colin Woodard. American Nations, A History of the Eleven Rival Regional Cultures of North America. It will certainly inspire your thinking. Thank you so much for being with us, Colin. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. 
subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.